0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. All
1: right. Hey there. Uh, that's Wilfred Riley, I believe. Am I not uh, correct in that? It is, I. Wilfred Riley, he is an uh, associate professor of politics at Kentucky State University. Uh, he is the author of, uh, what do you call it, Hate Crime Hoax? Is that the uh, earlier book uh, in which you. Uh, uh, actually debunk a lot of uh, public discussion about the frequency of uh, hate crimes, especially against people of color. Uh, And uh, more recently, uh, just coming out from Regnery Press, Taboo, uh, and then there's a subtitle. Uh, Will, what is it?
0: Uh, It's 10 Facts You Just Can't Talk About. And yeah, those are my two at least mass market books, Hate Crime Hoax, which I think we chopped it up about on this. We did talk about this six
1: months ago or so.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a book that looked at a lot of these very high-profile hate crime incidents. Uh, Jussie Smollett, Covington Catholic, if you want to throw that in there, uh, Yasmin Saweed and the torn hijab, allegedly on the New York Six train, uh, Duke University's lacrosse team, Drake University, Goucher College, Wisconsin Parkside with the nooses. Okay. Houston College with the death threats. To everybody. I got it.
1: There's a long list.
0: Yeah, you could throw in Erica Thomas. But yeah, we, I looked at a l- number of the highest profile uh, hate crime or hate <laughs> incident allegations in the USA, and I found that a very large percentage of them, which I estimate is 15% overall and more than that among high profile cases, more than that by far, turn out to be fakes. And in many cases, as in Mr. Smollett, that's undisputable. That's not debated among serious people. So I look at why this is. I look at the culture that's grown up around victimization on, in particular, university campuses.
1: Well, I don't mean to interrupt, but we've already discussed the book at the Glenn show. So I think yeah. uh, people can look book. up can look up in the archive; it wouldn't be hard to find. Tell us about taboo. Taboo is the taboo is my next book, and the
0: idea of taboo. Obviously, if you participate in online or cocktail party debate at all in modern America, one of the things that comes up is this concept of cancel culture that you, there are certain things you just can't discuss or that are impolite to discuss. And that's gone well beyond religion and sexuality to include a lot of race issues, a lot of class issues. So Tempo essentially looks at 10 of these issues. Uh, chapter one looks at whether there's any logical basis for the Black Lives Matter movement. Chapter two looks at the reality of interracial crime. There's very little of it, and it's very heavily uh, minority on white. Uh, A couple chapters look at the idea of culture and performance, race and IQ, that sort of thing. I have a consolidated chapter that takes on the idea of white privilege and cultural appropriation. These are, to a very large extent, not real ideas and that they're not scientifically sustainable, modelable ideas. Um, I draw up, with an utter lack of arrogance, I draw up an ideal immigration policy for the USA in Chapter 9. I noticed that. and Chapter 10, uh, the modesty.
1: Yeah, well, you say if you were emperor or king of America, something like this, this is what the policy would be. And then you uh, proceed to propound a number of uh, what I think would be highly uh, controversial proposals. Right. For example, IQ test as a condition of uh, granting uh, a, a visa to somebody to come to the United States. You're damn right, Glenn. I mean, so they, <laughs> we'll get into I, this more in, in, in due course. But uh, just know that this is a this guy is an iconoclast or an icon, a contrarian man yeah. after my own heart. Anyway, go ahead.
0: And chapter ten, uh, I take apart some of the crazy ideas on the right. I mean, I look at the idea of ethno states on the quote unquote alt right, um, the idea of a religious or theocratic society. Um, you know, the alt-right, again, diverse societies never succeed. And a lot of this is just fantasy. I mean, diverse societies do need a core civic ideal, but I mean, they've been successful since Rome. We're not going to break up into small countries where, you know, black conservatives get Alabama, but white alt-lightists get Washington. So I, I do focus on some of the things on the right that I consider um, bizarre, illogical as well. But most of the ideas in the discourse right now that fit that description do seem to be coming from what you might call the SJW left. So I kind of line them up and to the best of my abilities, take them down.
1: Okay. So that's what uh, the book Taboo is about. And we'll get into some of the details in a moment. But first I have to take advantage of the fact that you are in Western Kentucky yeah. and uh, this is uh, uh, it, we're speaking now uh, in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic um, and the national uh, shutdown for uh, sheltering and, and in place and social distancing and the fierce uh, debate that's raging in the country about how to respond, uh, both in terms of economic relief, in terms of public health policy, in terms of the quality of leadership coming out of the White House, in terms of deference to expertise, uh, these are all live questions that are being bandied about. Um, and I'm just wondering what it looks like from Western Kentucky, because last time I checked, that was flyover country. Uh, that that was not, you know, at the center of the media's uh, radar. That was not the place that you would first go to try to find out what Americans are thinking. But it's a place what I'm very interested in. And And what can you tell us about what's going on? How is social distancing working in Western Kentucky? What's being written in the editorial newspapers about the impact of the pandemic uh, and and who are being the population's hardest hit in your part of the world, et cetera? Well, Western Kentucky looks
0: a lot like America, I suspect, when it comes to coronavirus and not a lot like what you see on TV from the New York hospitals. Um, and this is something that's very notable when we talk about this disease. And this is something that's led a lot of governors, like the um, governor in South Dakota the other day, to suggest sort of a regional response to the bug, as opposed to taking the New York City methodological models and trying to apply those to Montana, for example. So in Kentucky, there are about 1,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus. I believe we've had 59 deaths. Uh, people are certainly following the rules that most of us think of as social distancing, distancing give people six feet of space in the store, or wash your hands, that kind of thing. But, I mean, a very large number of businesses are open as essential. Um, the newspapers, the Courier Excuse journal, me,
1: excuse me. Is there a statewide shutdown order in Kentucky?
0: Not really. There's a. Um, first of all, there, there are a lot of questions about legality of those and what a specific shelter-in-place order is. In Kentucky, what we have is what's called a healthy at home order, which I've read in my role as a college faculty member. And I suppose you would say executive. I'm our faculty ombudsman on that side. Uh, the governor strongly encourages people to remain safe. It's that sort of language. So grocery stores, um laundromats, I mean, a number of what you would think of as retail outlets, although not, you know, clothing stores, that kind of thing. About half of all businesses are open. And people are taking that exercise suggestion pretty seriously. So you see people on bikes, running, so on. So, again, people are following the rules that you associate with the disease environment, but there's not a whole lot of panic. Um, You know, I obviously have friends in the medical community, and one basic point is that our hospitals aren't flooded with people. That's just a fact. Um, in fact, in a lot of kind of heartland areas, talking to people in that community, for example, Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, Lexington, KY, West Virginia, a bigger issue for hospitals is that they've been ordered to stop performing most elective procedures to make way for this, quote unquote, wave of COVID-19 patients. But which issue, has not, Which has not materialized. Which is not there. And which, speaking from a methodological numbers perspective, is probably not going to be there. If you follow the major models, um, let's see what it, But okay, so if you follow the major models that the U.S. government is using, such as what's called the UW model, the peak of the coronavirus epidemic is projected to occur in about four days. Um, the projection figures go from April 12th to April 15th, um, and it now sorry, looks, is
1: that a nationwide uh, claim, not specific to particular regions of the country.
0: It's a claim about the maximum number of infections and deaths across the country. Right. Now, I suppose you could see a state peak after well, that. Well, you
1: will, you will be seeing that because there's a very different uh, uh, epidemiological dynamic going on in Washington State than in California, than in New York, than in Kentucky.
0: Sure. But I mean, I I think that, you know, again, though, if the national epidemic has peaked, you would then have a greater range of PPE and medical equipment available in neighboring states to help us out if we did see that worst case. Uh, Quite frankly, again, most physicians and so on in urban or ex-urban areas in the smaller states, their comment is that they're seeing a decline in hospital traffic. You're no longer seeing um, any elective surgical admissions, plastic surgeries, anything like that. And this idea that we're going to wait and see if there's a coronavirus flood while we're not doing 85% of what we do has actually caused some hospitals to engage in layoffs. A good buddy of mine lives in Tulsa, and their largest hospital recently laid off, I believe, 600 people, furloughed them for at least a couple of weeks because they're not doing anything that they normally do And they're also not seeing the COVID surge.
1: So you could argue with the uncertainty around the uh, way that the disease is going to propagate that uh, it's better to err on the side of uh, being too careful about this. Uh, The surge didn't happen or hasn't yet happened to the extent people predicted. But it might well have done it. It might yet do. uh, And therefore, I can imagine an argument like that. This is the debate, right? And I mean,
0: okay. I don't, and I think this goes for you as well, Glenn. I think this goes for everyone in these conversations on both sides. No one wants anyone's grandmother to die. No one wants anyone's business to go bankrupt. Let's assume that is a starting point. I mean, we'd all like to mitigate any potential harms as much as possible. I personally feel, and I feel this way as someone who teaches quantitative methods classes at a solid state university, not just in my personal capacity, um. I feel that we've erred extremely far on the side of caution, or we've chosen to project extremely far on the side of caution. So the reason for this uh, really is one statistical model. Looking at the methods blogs, talking to my colleagues in academia or in the medical field across that line, looking even at Twitter, uh, Neil Ferguson, uh, the British methodologist, around March 14th, I believe, wrote a short paper where he calculated that 2.2 million people could die of coronavirus in the United States.
1: Excuse me, that's uh, out of the Imperial College University of London, if I'm not mistaken. Dr. Neil Ferguson,
0: Imperial College. Um, He's been described as the man who shut down the world. I don't think that's entirely fair. Um, But essentially, what he did, and that's not my description, I have to source that, look that up. But what he did essentially is say. If three things happened, we could see this very large number of deaths. Um, Thing one is a very high infection rate approaching 80%. Uh, It's worth noting that that's very atypical when you look at flu-like diseases. Um, There was an entire cruise ship, the Diamond Princess, that was adrift for weeks with coronavirus patients on it. Their infection rate was 17%. So, okay, one, 80%.
1: Yeah, may Maybe. I just mention that that's Ian Eadies, the Stanford uh scientist who analyzed the data from the, that cruise ship yeah. and uh, wrote a very strong, I thought, uh piece in which he said, you know, let's go slow and think carefully about what we're doing because we really don't have the data to make hard and fast conclusions. And what data we have suggested it well might not be as virulent as many have said.
0: That is absolutely correct. I would strongly recommend that article by Ianitas from Stanford's team in the coronavirus pandemic. We're making decisions without statistical evidence. That's exactly correct. I feel the same way you do about that, Glenn. But essentially, Ferguson's first estimate was 80 percent infection. His second estimate was a one percent or nearly one percent fatality rate among the general population. Uh, We'll get into that in a second. And his third estimate was that we, or his third uh, baseline here was that we don't do anything to mitigate. And Ferguson himself has said that he included that uh, to some extent to be provocative, to show a potential worst case. No one assumes that we're not going to mitigate. But I mean, just (laughs) to take some numbers here, I mean, Ianita said that if you take the death rate on the Diamond Princess, which is a bit under 1%, and you plot that against the age graph of the population in the United States, if that makes sense. The old joke is that crew, cruise ship passengers tend to be newlyweds or nearly deads. Uh, average age on the ship was something like 65, and I have to check that. But if you take that data and you plot it against the actual U.S. population, you're talking about a death rate of 0.125%. So all I'm going to say here is that if you take those alternative numbers, you take 0.125%, suggested by one of the better methodologists in the world, you take... 20%, which is the undisputed infection rate in a closed environment where people were there for a month, and you assume mitigation, you're all of a sudden talking about a 20th or a 40th of Ferguson's 100%. estimate. So we have chosen to be cautious based on this Ferguson model and a few others. But as you mentioned, there are direct responses to that.
1: What is the political uh, character of the discussion in um, your part of the world uh, right now? Are people uh, more or less... Happy with the way that the president is conducting uh, the uh, his responsibilities at this critical time? Um, are, are they uh, clamoring for more, uh, you know, uh, rigorous uh, government policy or whatever? How are people taking the economic hit? This kind of thing.
0: I'm going to try to be polite and tactful here because I please do <laughs> no because I have a professional job. But no people as as I, but no people are not clamoring for more harsher government measures um most people are aware that there is a disease epidemic going on they're willing to wait things out somewhat but i mean i've heard many many more people say this is ridiculous they're shutting down things like jogging trails there's no way you could possibly infect someone then i have heard people say what we need is a national in-house lockdown And I think that's very typical of most of the quote unquote flyover states where, again, you have a thousand cases or five thousand cases. I will say, I mean, there are four million people in Kentucky and Louisville is a city of more than a million people. So we don't have a tiny population. I mean, this is a there is a very, very low detected prevalence of covid-19. And I think many people looking at that and looking at how skillfully most people are social distancing. We don't have some of the issues with that that you might see in, for example, New York. Um, are kind of wondering more, when will this end than should we institute a national lockdown? And I think this is a situation where you really see the influence of the media and the influences on the media's perspective. Because, I mean, the national mass media is based in New York, L.A., and D.C. Those are hard-hit big cities. So you constantly see these columns in the Times or the Post, like, we need a national lockdown now to save millions. That's not necessarily the perspective of most people. It is extremely easy to stay six feet away from someone in downtown Frankfort, Kentucky. It might not be on the NYC subway. I grew up in downtown Chicago. I'm familiar with this. But again, that's why so many governors have called for a regional approach. If social distancing works in a large farm and fleet style store in Kentucky, there's no reason not to go with that approach. If that would be virtually impossible in the Chanel boutique, you know, on Park Avenue, you might need different rules and regulations there.
1: Okay, now you've heard these arguments, and I'll just say them for the sake of our, uh, you know, discussion here. Uh, If you don't do it universally, it doesn't really have the same impact because the virus doesn't respect regional boundaries. And even if you don't have a high uh, incidence of infections or deaths at the current moment, you still might have asymptomatic carriers, etc., so that if, if you don't have a universal shutdown, you're not going to you risk not getting the benefit of the uh, of the shutdown in the areas in which you have it. Well, that's
0: one I'd leave more to the doctors, but I will say I don't personally see the logic of that at all. I mean, if you're talking about an area like Montana, where it's extremely easy to keep the six feet that prevents the spread of most transmissible diseases, this has been known since the Spanish flu and people are maintaining that distance and are following other protocols like hand-washing, logically, unless all of modern epidemiology is wrong, they won't get the disease. So I don't see how they could then spread the disease, which they apparently would not have, to other individuals. I also think that there's an element of kind of back acidness to that. I mean, when people are saying, well, those people from thinly populated southern states could come to New York and infect us. I mean, that's not necessarily what we've been seeing. I mean, I think what we've actually... Well, seen- they might
1: be saying, excuse me, that somebody from Cincinnati will cross over the river into Kentucky, and uh, if Kentucky's not locked down and uh, Ohio is, uh, they're going go to go you know for their recreation or their shopping or whatever it is, and they're going to bring the virus with them.
0: Well, but I mean, the the issue there... Now, again, there, there are trade-offs in reality. The question is, what level of risk are we willing to shut down the world's powerhouse economy for? So that's that's yeah. the flip well, that's side. It. I mean, I think that, you know, doing some risk analysis there, if Kentucky is properly socially distancing, and as soon as that guy gets back to Ohio, he's locked down, I don't see how you're going to transmit the disease in an R higher than 1. So, I mean, I actually, you know, I, I was hesitant to say this in this format, but, I mean, as someone in a decently significant local role, I mean, there are some things that I would suggest in terms of combating coronavirus – Um, the first would be random serological testing, and I think that's where the debate really needs to begin, because the most significant issue with coronavirus is that there's a denominator problem, as I think you phrased it. So frankly, we don't know how many people have coronavirus, and this is unbelievably significant. Um, It's extremely difficult to get a coronavirus test. I was flatly refused for one by my physician. Uh, in most states, and I believe this is still true here. as true as of a couple of days ago. To get a test, you have to be very sick, i.e., symptomatic. You have to be able to demonstrate that you were in contact with someone who had coronavirus, and they're probably going to call that person. I know they did okay. early on. Um, you have to be willing to contact a hospital and ask for this scary test, and then go through a thirty-minute screening process. So the pool of people that we know have COVID nineteen is the pool of people who are very symptomatic, who had personal intimate contact with someone with coronavirus, and who passed through the 30-minute screener. That's an extremely selected sample. I mean, in the entire country, we've given less than 2 million COVID-19 tests, as of worldometers two days ago, one. And we're seeing something crazy, like a 30% positive rate for those. Um, And that implies to me that there are many, 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 just by definition there are far more people that have COVID-19 than that have tested positive for COVID-19. If you don't meet all of those criteria and you call a doctor and say you have COVID-19, you'll be told to stay home for between one and two weeks. That's it. So, I mean, a team from Stanford University, which includes uh, Dr. Ioannidis, who we've been talking about, has estimated that the actual fatality rate for coronavirus could be as low as 0.08%. Um, and their source for that estimate isn't... it isn't just making it up, which is the problem with some of these models, frankly. It's looking at testing data from the VO, V-O, province region of Italy, uh, from Iceland, and I believe from Belgium, where random tests have been done to see how many people test positive for coronavirus. And in Italy, it was 3%. Iceland, it was 7%. Belgium, it was 8%. And all of those, uh, those tests used are from serious players like Decode Genetics, Very low rate of false positives. You'd say one percent, perhaps. You can call that the margin of error. But the the indication there is that more than five percent of all people have contacted contracted COVID nineteen over the period of time that the epidemic's been raging. Possibly more. That's probably just the percentage that have it now. So anyway, the conclusion of all that would be that if the deaths that we're seeing, a total of less than thirteen thousand come from, say, 5% of the U.S. population, 16.5 million people, rather than from 300,000 positively tested individuals, we're looking at a fatality rate about on par with serious flu. So the first thing that I think should be done, or I suppose that I would do, is a series of large and random, preferably serological tests, to see what the actual infection rate and actual death rate are here. And I mean, and in, in, uh, there's not. I, I want you problems. to explain to
1: people what you mean by serological tests. I'm not sure everybody will understand that.
0: Sure, there's a distinction between tests that show current positivity for or infection by the virus, and tests that show antibodies for the virus. Um, I would prefer that tests that show antibodies for the virus be used, just from a methods perspective, because that would mean that everyone who's been infected in could be detected, rather than just everyone who's infected now. Yeah, and I wanna.
1: I just want to underscore for the uh, viewership. I mean, the point here is that uh, it's the denominator problem. You want to know how bad this is? You can see everybody who's sick. You can't see everybody who might have been sick carrying the virus but didn't get sick. And if you don't have random testing of the population, if you only have testing directed by the presentation of symptoms, you'll never count those people who have the uh, virus but who do not uh, get sick from it, and therefore you will risk overestimating the deadliness uh, and severity of the virus.
0: Yeah, the Stanford team, I I like simple points in science where you don't have a lot of postmodern jargon. You just run your model and you see what the numbers indicate and then you write it up. The Stanford team makes a really, really obvious point, which is that these terrifying death rates that we see, we're at 3.1% right now, I think if you look at new cases, resolved cases, the full block of cases together, 3.1% death rate, that sounds terrifying. However, again, the issue is that that is strictly out of the pool of highly symptomatic, sick people who are in direct contact with someone who we know had the virus, who asked to go to a hospital and take the test. So the Stanford team's point is just that if you take the results of the random testing, you're dividing that figure by whatever it was, 56. And that gives you the actual death rate. Actually, I think in Italy, it was 116. So if you take the death rate and you place that over 116, you're suddenly looking at something that's much less terrifying. And that is, in my opinion, more likely to be accurate. We keep hearing these apocalyptic predictions. We've already seen the start of a viral curve. But right now, we're at 12,800 deaths, not 2 million. The epidemic's peak is projected to be nationally. your, Your point there is correct but nationally in four days. So it's hard to jump from 12K to 2M. I mean, there had to have been a mistake in this model.
1: Well, I think we're starting to see some uh, uh, drawing back and some corrections within the specialized scientific community as people are coming out uh, with studies uh, very much consistent with the line that you're taking here. I just (laughs) want to underscore that neither you nor I are, are social epidemiologists Sure. So we are both quantitative social scientists trained specifically in the kind of inference problems that the lack of data that we have here in this uh, situation uh, called to mind. So, uh, you know, deferring to experts, no nobody here, neither Wilfred Riley nor Glenn Lowry, are anti-science, are dismissive of expertise, are, you know, uh, living in uh, some kind of dream world. But we are skeptical in the appropriate manner of how data are utilized to make public policy. And we're just asking questions. Can you endorse that? Absolutely. Strongly endorse that, Glenn,
0: uh, Dr. Lowry. And I also will say there are certain there are tendencies you notice if you're in science and you go to the conferences. I mean, one is that apocalyptic predictions get published. You see this across global climate change modeling. You see
1: this. Oh, no, you didn't say that, did you? You're talking that? about taboos. That, that's one of the most taboos Climate change. say. We're all going to live. This is
0: so – no, but, I mean, we'll get back to climate change. The right sometimes does this when it comes to battle deaths or the necessity of warfare or something like that. But apocalyptic predictions get published. That's been known for a while. There's actually a well-known book by a couple of right-leaning but good uh, scientists called Apocalypse Not that looks at the history of these doomsaying models – And there are tons of them, by the way. I mean, remember Paul Ehrlich's population bomb? Oh, yeah. Uh, Simple Malthusian math there. Uh, The world is going to become overpopulated. He didn't adjust for the impact of new technologies like birth control. Well, he
1: famously made this bet with this guy. I can't remember the guy's name now. Uh, It may come to me. Uh, uh, The guy who was always talking about uh, uh, more people being good for humanity over the long run. I guess I can't remember his name. But they made a bet. (laughs) <laughs> about what uh you know say 1980 about what, what would be the situation uh 25 years out and uh Ehrlich lost that bet badly yeah I know exactly
0: what you're talking about I can't remember either but I think it was one of the uh, plumbers- Simon oh.
1: his last name Julian Simon is the okay. guy people just google, google Julian Simon Paul Ehrlich and you'll find out what we're talking about
0: Yeah, the bet was, the idea was a really well-constructed bet. The idea was that if more people are a negative, you would see the price of resources skyrocket and the use of those resources on a per capita basis decline. So they bet on the price of a bunch of standard resources, zinc and the like. And Ehrlich's claim was that this price would be through the roof and the resources would be less widely used in 10 years, I believe. And he lost across every resource. It turned out that as more people were born, and even that occurred on a shallower curve than was projected because of birth control, but as more people were born, you had more inventors, more scientists, you had more people Mm -hmm. digging to find this stuff. But I I do want to say, Glenn, there's a whole series, mostly on the left, not entirely, of these incorrect scientific predictions over the years. So it's not just Ehrlich. It's the Club of Rome.
1: Remember Global Cooling? The front page. I, I, I do. I do. And I was around in 1973 when we had that oil crisis thing going on. And uh, people were talking about the price of oil was going to go up like this, like this, like this, like this. Last yeah. time I opened up the financial section of my newspaper, we were worried about an oil glut and the price yeah. being too low. Yeah, we it's were going just... to run out of hydrocarbons within my lifetime. And, you know, oh, yeah. I'm not as young as I used to be, I don't think it's going to happen.
0: Yeah. Peak oil. Peak oil was a big one. Um, the heterosexual and married AIDS epidemic, HIV was going to sweep through everyone in that kind of hypersexual late 80s era. All that happened was people started wearing condoms, being a little more faithful. Uh, just on and on and on. Global cooling. I already said that one. Killer bees in the great northerly migration. The ozone hole. Now that did require mitigation. Sometimes there's a real problem that we do need to engage. No one denies that you we are.
1: Hydrofluorocarbons and, uh, uh, ozone. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we cut out one of the, the third most commonly used ingredient in hairspray. Don't want to be glib, but that was, that was the solution. But just on and on and on and on, the trash land problem, will the world be overrun by landfills, nuclear collapse, we solve that by using less of cleaner nuclear power, but the idea was there'd be three mile islands and Chernobyl's everywhere. This just, again, there are entire books, like Apocalypse Not that break these down, Acid Rain. I tend to have Looking at the major doomsday predictions on left and occasionally right for the past 55 years, I tend to have a strong bias that I'm acknowledging here toward the idea that we're not all going to die. When I look at that coronavirus modeling ticker and it says 13,000, you know, we can mourn every one of those tragedies while still recognizing, hey, that's not 2 million. Once again, it seems like effective, reasonable mitigation, like standing six feet apart solved the majority of the problem one and it also seems like the problem might just might have been a little overhyped in the first place
1: okay now you're gonna get or i'm gonna get since you probably uh will not hear this uh but i'm gonna get a whole lot of flack uh from viewers they're going to be citing dr zeke Emanuel's uh piece that you might have seen just the last couple of days if we don't shut down for 12 to 18 months uh, we're doomed we have no choice we got to shut down for a year because that's the only way to as it were, kill the virus and make sure it's dead. Otherwise, we open too soon. It comes back. We'll be in the same situation six or nine months from now uh, with a, a resurgence, um, and we need to do this. Uh, people are going to find it irresponsible for me to even allow you at my platform to voice such uh, contrarian sentiments. So um, I'm going to give you an opportunity to clean it up. Sure. Well, I don't think there's any cleanup needed. I mean, the argument that
0: I'm making, that I think you have a substantial amount of sympathy with, is based on major papers coming from a team of researchers from universities like Stanford. None of this is especially debatable. So in terms of the denominator issue, the, the only way doomsday predictions for coronavirus methodologically are sustainable is if the death rate among all people from the bug, COVID-19, would be equivalent to the death rate among the selected group of symptomatic seniors, who have mostly seniors, who have so far taken the test. I think that's wildly unrealistic. As a healthy male former athlete, I was told there's no chance I would get a test for quite a while. Um, no, I'm not sick. But if I were to say I have a serious, funky flu, can I please have a test, the response would have been exactly the same. The debate is about whether we're talking about 10 times more cases than... we have tested for, which is what Mina from Harvard recently estimated, or 100, which is what the Stanford team recently estimated. But I don't see the doomsday scenario playing out. And this is part of a long thread to some extent of these doomsday scenarios not playing out. There also, by the way, this is another taboo, but there's a trade-off question here. Yeah. So, I mean, if we picked a near worst-case estimate for deaths using the models you and I have been bringing up, say, 400,000 individuals, and this were the alternative to shutting down the country for 18 months, which would cost $18 trillion, it seemed to be a fair estimate looking at lost GDP. We'd have to very seriously discuss that. The unfortunate fact is that human beings not being gods are by definition mortal. So many, many things kill us. We're a short-lived predator species. Um, about 50,000 people per year are killed just tooling around on the highway. Um, 450,000 people per year are killed by obesity, essentially. If you look at the impact of that on heart attack, uh, other diseases, cancer takes even more human lives. So if someone were openly to say you have to shut down your entire society for a year and a half or people might die, the response to some level has to be, well, people already die. Let's weigh the costs and benefits of that. I don't see something like an 18 month shutdown as being at all feasible. Um, you know, I's a like,
1: separate it's a separate question. I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but I just want to be clear. Feasibility is a separate question from the relative valuation question. I'm with you on both. I think feasibility is very important because if you undertake this and it's not feasible to maintain it for as long as it would need to be maintained to have a definitive impact, then all the costs that you incur from undertaking it when you finally do have to relinquish, because it's not feasible to sustain it for a year and a half, will have been incurred to no effect. So whether or not to go down this policy road in the first place depends in part upon a judgment about, can we sustain this kind of thing for the 18 months that will be necessary to make this thing absolutely go away? And if the answer to that is no, you need to reconsider at the start whether or not you want to go down that road. That's a separate point from the point about whether or not eight or 10 or $18 trillion of national wealth is too high a price to pay for 50 or 75 or a hundred thousand deaths. Both of those questions it seems to me should be on the table. Neither one of them is speakable at the moment. Yes. And I'm just going to say this. If we're currently valuing a hundred
0: thousand lives at $18 trillion, Glenn, we can never fight another war. Um, Unfortunately, In any sector of elite business, if you're looking at the building of bridges or of jet planes, um, in any arena of the military or the military sciences, in politics itself, we unfortunately often make calculations that do incorporate the valuation of individual human lives. If you've ever done union work, at least thinking back to the old days, they'll hand you a card on about your fourth day that tells you what your eye or your leg is worth if you lose it. It's a substantial amount of money, but less than I value my eyes and legs for.
1: But we realistically—well, let's I, see. Let's do the arithmetic. If it were indeed eighteen trillion dollars, and if it were indeed a hundred thousand, that's a hundred into eighteen billion. By my calculation, that's hundred eighty million dollars in life. Yeah. And uh, last time I checked, that ain't anywhere close to what an insurance company will pay out if you know you have that a claim. Is,
0: yes, that is an, a a very high figure. I'm going to be as polite as possible because this is such a serious topic. In general, if you've ever done skilled union work, as I suspect you probably have, or you've ever been in a military role, or you've ever just been in business and you've looked at how something like the risk plot projection for building a bridge is calculated, the typical value of a human life, and anyone watching this can free to Google this, uh, is set usually at about $10 million. And there's a definite reason for that. I mean, that's a solid middle-class income, even today, over 100 years times two. So if you're saying the typical valuation is a solid middle-class income over a century doubled, and you're talking about 18 or 20 times that, you're going to find that very, very few societies are going to be willing to pay that bill. Uh, That's all I can say. I'm not an extraordinarily moral person. I'm not a priest, not a bad one either. But that is very much out of whack with anything we've ever seen throughout human history.
1: But now, and we're talking about taboo, at least we thought we were talking about. We might get around to it in due course. But now, speaking of taboos, a politician simply can't say.
0: Yes, this is a problem.
1: Okay, and this is interesting from the point of view of public leadership and public decision making. Simply can't say, that's too much to pay to save a life. I will take this course of action, even though I know it's going to cost lives, because I don't want to take that course of action, which will cost too much money. That's simply not something that can be said. Well,
0: but to some extent, a gener- I think you've just identified a structural weakness of democracy. Uh, Ariston of Athens, I believe it was, once made this argument. But at some point, a general or one of these governors that has emergency powers or something like that has to say this. I mean, there there has to be a statement at some point. If it costs $18 trillion to save 100,000 mostly senior lives, we will try to quarantine seniors as best as possible. We will cry and pray for every life lost, but we are simply not going to do that. We are not going to destroy our economy and our society to avoid paying this price. And to a certain extent, it would be cowardly to do
1: so. Uh, I, think I, I just want the audience to understand, we are not, the $18 trillion number is just a number, okay? We're not serious about saying that that's what the cost of a shutdown is going to be. That's what the- Though I will note that that's about one year's worth of GDP in the United States of America. And if you completely close down the economy for a year and a half, Numbers in that vicinity are not implausible. Yeah, I think that's a
0: roughly accurate estimate of the cost of an eighteen-month shutdown. If you're talking about a twenty-three trillion-dollar GDP, yeah, that was that was not just a number. Obviously, it's not. It's that's not the real number. That's not exactly what we'd see. It could be, yeah, but it's not a
1: crazy. It's not a yeah. crazy number to be you talking think. about. If you would have follow Dr. Zeke Emanuel's advice and shut the country down yes. for 18 months.
0: My personal opinions, and again, I am a fairly skilled quantitative methodologist. I'm not a doctor. I welcome comeback from virologists and so on here. Sure. But looking at what I've seen in the published papers, to me, the sanest options regarding coronavirus seem to be one, randomized serological testing now. Uh, we can very easily find out there's not an enormous problem, quite frankly. If we find out that 40% of people have already had COVID-19, which is not an unreasonable estimate, in the Lombardy region of Italy, as of last week, it was 70% when they finally started serological testing. And that indicates that those terrible wildfire numbers we've seen come from basically the whole population, by the way, which is awful as that sounds is good news. But randomized serological testing today, um, I suppose the second point would be, the kind of serious social distancing that the brits didn't initially think we we're going to do that <coughs> you can see if you go to a kroger i mean where there are stamped placards on the floor saying 6 feet apart people are extraordinarily polite to one another hands are washed you have a sanitizing station costs 10 bucks to set one of those up we did on the ksu campus that would be step 2 um ideally i would like to combine that with as close to a hard senior quarantine as you can get um one of the things we see with COVID-19, another taboo, as you might put it, is that the stuff you're supposed to say, like this virus has it in for everybody, isn't really accurate. Uh, I've been following the NYC data day by day. And as I recall, the most recent date, about 1,600 people died and 11 of them were people under 65 with no serious pre existing conditions. If you go to ny.gov, they give a short list of these conditions. They're not just making up random medical things. One of them is asthma, severe chronic asthma. But out of 1,600 people, 11 were people without conditions like chronic asthma who are under 65. Um, I don't know whether it would be legal to lock the most vulnerable people in their houses. Arguably not. But, I mean, at the same time, it's not legal in, under most circumstances to cancel church services. The closer we can get to real protection of the most vulnerable, as kind of a point three here, the better. Whether that means terrifying ads saying if you go outside, you'll die. Whether that means what we're seeing in Kentucky, which is coordinated community networks delivering products to, say, seniors with PEC. I really like that idea. I encourage everyone to do that if they can volunteer locally. But the closer you can get to protecting the small fringe of very vulnerable people, the better. So serological testing, uh, Swedish model improved. You can just go to a Walmart and see how well this works. Um... Protection, to put it politely, of the vulnerable group of individuals, and I also think there's a place for regional flexibility. That strikes me, and I didn't come up with these ideas; they're in the papers. That strikes me as a coherent, long-term model for beating COVID-19. What's the paper again? Oh, there are there are a bunch of different papers about this. Oh, I mean, okay, what- so the ideas are in the newspaper. That's what you mean. No, no. I mean, there are a bunch of different. So one uh, link that has several of the scientific papers, and it would be Fortune. um, Does Iceland have the best approach for fighting coronavirus? Uh, Another example would be one of the leading British magazines. um, Their headline was something glib, like if Sweden pulls this off, we're screwed. But they include some very serious data in there. Uh, A more serious version of that same article would be called, and this, don't think it was peer reviewed, but kind of quillette level intellectual uh joke location was Sweden believes the rest of the world is making a dangerous ill-informed choice.
1: All of these, these headlines to peace. Uh, and again, we want to underscore Sweden has not instituted nationwide lockdown. Uh, no. They're proceeding under more or less a rubric such as you just got through describing. Yeah. And one thing that's worth noting here is that they're not alone. I mean, there are quite a
0: few countries and we can get into the impact of race and class diversity here. Uh, another taboo. But, I mean, they tend to be smaller, homogenous states. But there are quite a few civilized countries that we're friendly with that are following basically the model that I just laid out in conversation with Glenn. So Japan, South Korea, Iceland. Sweden's not a one-off waiting for an avalanche of death.
1: The question is— I to going back to school in uh, Austria uh, uh, next week or something like that.
0: Yeah, they, the impression I get is that they feel they overreacted a bit. Um, they haven't really seen a massive slowdown in cases, but they also haven't seen many cases. They're opening the schools. And again, the question isn't, should we do nothing? It, now's not the time to take your grandmother to a bar. The question is, if we're doing extremely intense social distancing, people standing six feet apart, washing their hands, using Lysol wipes on the cart, doing some of the things that we probably should have been doing all along, if you look at how many people flu kills every year. But if you have that one. And alternatively, two, you have a full lockdown. Does the full lockdown scenario save enough more lives than the SD scenario to justify the trillion dollar cost? And I will be blunt. I don't think it does. I don't think a lot of people at that gubernatorial level think it does. There's, to some extent, you illustrated the democracy problem very well. Who's going to be the first guy to say this?
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the racial disparity issue for a minute, and then perhaps uh, we can get to your book in the next conversation that we have, uh, because I, I really do appreciate you as a serious, quantitative social scientist, and that's what Wolford Riley is, uh, engaging with me around uh, these questions. I, I think the public discussion has been insufficiently um, open uh, on this, and there's a, there's a hurting kind of tendency for everybody to... Uh, get on board, do the patriotic and right thing. And as I think also, Will, and I wonder what you think about this, contempt for the president that is so widespread, uh, has, uh, I think helped to fuel, uh, this, uh, this environment that we're in, in which, uh, it's, it's not easy to question conventional wisdom that advocates significant restriction of economic activity, since it's well known that the president would like to, quote, open the country up, close quote, sooner rather than later. So uh, what do you think about that? The last thing I'm saying, contempt for the president adversely affecting the quality of our public discourse. And what do you have to say about, I'm seeing these stories uh, daily now. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones has a very long, much uh, circulated uh, tweet uh, in which she uh, 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 you know, chronicles the extent, nature, and the extent of the racial disparity in the incidence of COVID-19 uh, disease. Um, uh, what do you have to say on those two points? And, and perhaps we can wrap it up.
0: Well, I mean, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who we've professionally sparred with in roles at the 1776 initiative, also said the Revolutionary War was fought to protect slavery. I mean, I, I don't have any comments. OK, out. so
1: forget her. Let's not take her seriously. Right. But the issue of okay. disparities is out there. Yeah. So my honest opinion
0: on this, first of all, my initial reaction to this being brought up was disgust. Not that black people might make up a slightly disproportionate percentage of those to fall.
1: It's more than I, slightly. Well, and that's it, because in they're Chicago, using- Chicago, they're two, three quarters or so of the cases and uh, 30% of the population, et cetera. That's because they're, they're
0: using selected city by city data. I guarantee you that's not true in Appalachian, Kentucky. Um, but that, that actually is one of three points I'll get into here. But my first reaction was sort of discussed. While we're battling a- Deadly disease, even if perhaps not as deadly as the media would like to tell us, it really isn't the time to try to divide the highly integrated professions on the front line, nurses, police officers, and so on, with this kind of racial bean counting. I was very surprised to see major publications run that stuff. As re the actual question itself of racial disparities, um, I think there are three obvious responses from what we keep referring to as that scientific or that methods perspective One is, are there racial disparities nationally? So, I mean, I guarantee you I could go to Lexington, Kentucky, much less Hazard, Kentucky, and find that a great number of those did happen to be poor whites and say, oh, look. And the legitimate response to me is to say, Riley, you're in urban Kentucky. That's totally invalid. That doesn't necessarily represent anything. So when I've, the very few times, and I haven't done this for weeks, I'll do it right after the show, but the very few times I've looked at deaths across the USA, you have to notice that the large majority of them are older whites. So you simply have to notice that. Look at the average age. Look at the average age for the white population versus the black population. Many ways to do this. Um, so first, I would question whether that's true at all on anything but a localized macro-urban level. Two, the most obvious question here is do blacks, whites, and other groups – score equally when it comes to serious pre-existing conditions that don't have anything to do with racism, like diabetes and obesity.
1: It, well, hold a, on, hold on. Many people will say they do have something to do with racism, and then they'll have an argument about food deserts or about, uh, you know, uh, environmental uh, proximity to dump sites and well, things of this kind. At the, I mean, so first of all, you can argue, the argument of the hard activist left for about 50 years has
0: been that literally everything is racism. So if I were to point out, well, if you adjust for obesity, this disparity goes away, as I strongly suspect it would, someone might say, well, that's racist. I personally don't think having access to too much good food and this thus being fat is an indicator of racial oppression by any conventional past human standard. But even then, if you're saying that it is, we would then have to adjust for class, right? Right. Are poor whites any less likely or more likely to be obese than poor blacks? I think leaving, because this is a very, this is a high level debate, just at the most basic level, assuming that asthma isn't due to racism. The second question to be asked after are there discrepancies at all nationally is to what extent are those explained by external health variables? Um, But a third point that again is taboo by the book um, but a third point is, are people following the shelter-in-place guidelines to the same extent? This is one of these that we're probably not supposed to talk about. And intrad- by
1: the way, we don't really know, but at least the possibility could be entertained.
0: Well, I can tell you, I mean, I live in a working-class white and black neighborhood. And I mean, like, I've been asked to play five-on-five basketball over the past couple of days. Yeah, Like, if you go down the street, I'm not going to tell where the court is so people can go snitch on someone out there with their son. But I mean, if you go by some of these venues, like an urban basketball court, you're going to see a ton of people, many black, many working class white out there. So you've got to ask at some realistic level, um, are all people across class lines and racial lines following the same guidelines? And if not, wouldn't that almost totally explain any discrepancies?
1: Here's what's going to be said. What's going to be said is, no, they're not following the same guidelines. All right, you want to do your study, do it. You'll find that blacks are not maintaining on average the same degree of social distance, but they can. not They have to take public transit to get to work. Uh, they're the ones who are going to have to be delivering your food or whatever it is. And uh, they, because they don't have the privilege of being able to telecommute to their offices, uh, are uh, structurally uh, predisposed to be in a situation where they're more likely to catch the disease. So. Yes, Riley, you're right. They're not social distancing as much, but you're wrong. It is racism at the end of the day that explains that because of the structure of people's occupations, where they live, what kind of transport, transport options they have, and so forth.
0: I think that racism has to have a real meaning. I mean, for a century, it meant disliking members of another racial population for genetic reasons. That's still kind of where I am. I mean, what you're describing is a very complex lattice work that people sometimes use to say you can't disentangle race from region and class when you're talking about these issues. But yes, you can. If you're running the most basic standard regression model and you find that African-Americans are more likely to suffer from a deadly disease, which is a thing worth studying, than Caucasians or Asians or whatnot, the next question would be, is that true if you adjust for income and region? And I would strongly, strongly bet that it probably isn't. So are you talking about a race issue or are you talking about a class issue or are you talking about an urban issue? This is another thing. This is, this is one of those gaps that's hardly ever discussed. African-Americans are more likely to live in cities, which in fact have a higher on average income than the surrounding rural areas, but which have more people. Um, So if you're comparing the death rate of people white or black in new Orleans, which is the city they seem to keep focusing on with the death rate of people white or black in Montana, Of course, you're going to see more black people in the category of the fallen because there are more black people in the urban setting and virtually none in the rural setting. So uh, this gets this gets back to the same point sort of for me. Before you can even argue this, you would have to look at whether the discrepancy continues if you adjust for urban status, if you adjust for class, if you adjust for region. I don't think it does. Um, I can't imagine that there's some sort of genetic reason or reason based totally in racism why a working-class white guy is less likely to get COVID-19 than a working-class black guy. That sounds fantastic.
1: All right, let me just make a methodological observation here. It'll be trivial for you, but I think some listeners might appreciate it, which is the disparity. No one's denying the existence of the racial disparity. The question is about causality. The question is the whether or not the fact of the disparity is indicative of some remediable maltreatment or differential treatment or discrimination uh, on, uh, uh, the, to which uh, the African Americans are subject. Uh, once you take into account all the other non-racial factors that might be involved in this situation, the raw disparity as a statistical matter probably can be accounted for. We haven't done this study, but uh, you need the data. This is a final point that I'll make. Uh, Because one of the policy issues that's being debated is should the public health officials be required to collect data by race um, in the midst of this pandemic? And I'm inclined to say yes, if only for the uh, opportunity to make use of those data to dispel the kind of conspiracy theorist, uh, racist uh, 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 narrative mongers uh, who are going to take the disparity and use it to, to run with it to push their narrative. Yeah, I agree.
0: I mean, I I think all almost always more data is better. That's literally the baseline of both of our professions. I mean, and what you just said there, Tom Soule summed this up in the title of one of his books, uh, Discrimination and Disparities. There tends to be an idea on the political left that any disparity is due to discrimination. So, for example, um, I, I did this on the air about a week or two ago, but it's frequently mentioned that the average black man earns 84 percent or whatever of the average yeah. white man attributed to racism. That gap almost entirely closes if you adjust for age, years rather than quality of education and region of the country. Uh, brothers are more likely to live in the uh, same. And IQ. Yeah, well, IQ is the second part. So the gap was 16 percent. If you adjust for age, years of education, and and again, not quality of education, just go to school, stay in school, don't get arrested while you're in school. Age, years of education, and um, Southern residency, basically, the gap closes to 5%. If you adjust for tested IQ score, the gap closes to 1%. And you could ask, is that the actual level of hardcore residual racism in the USA that an upper middle class black person would face, 1% to 2%? Not really prepared to comment on that, but the figures are there, you know. So the gap itself before you make the adjustment is meaningless. So that's one of them. I mean, another one would be test scores without getting into more complex and taboo issues.
1: um, Let me me hold you off on that because our time is running short. And I wanted to get your comment, if you're willing to, about whether uh, antipathy toward the president had somehow uh, filtered into the public discourse in a a, uh, disadvantageous way.
0: Of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I lean right, but not extraordinarily far right. And I don't think that this comment really comes from a partisan political perspective at all. I mean, the media doesn't like Trump, hates the guy. Um, They always viewed him as a crass, long-tied New Yorker, and they ran for president as a Republican. I mean, so there are studies. Pew found at one point that 94 percent, you might correct this, but 94 percent of media coverage of Trump was negative. And I think that that level of dislike and Trump has not responded to this in the most mature way either, calling CNN fake news and throwing, yeah. a report, throwing reporters out of press conferences. But obviously, a back and forth famous feud between the president and the top journalists contributes to this. And you've seen this in a discussion of issues that should really be kind of neutral scientific questions. So, I mean, hydroxychloroquine is the uh, apex example here. Yeah. This is a chemical that's used to treat malaria that appears, reading through what a number of doctors have said, including doctors in my area, to be useful in the treatment of COVID-19.
1: Too early to be sure that it's safe, but uh, yes. certainly there are indications in that direction, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I mean, many, many doctors in France, this has just been approved to treat uh, COVID, as I understand, in Italy. And many doctors are asking for kind of boosted stockpiles of the stuff. So there's a debate here, and I think the, the evidence is 66 or more percent on the side of the hydroxychloroquine probably works, my personal opinion, but it's sort of a dry scientific debate, and the media has managed to turn this into Trump is encouraging people to drink fish tank cleaner, because it turns out that one of the sources of a cruder form of hydroxychloroquine is what you use to keep, you know, your beta tank clean.
1: Well, those are the extreme anti-Trump claims. The more mainstream claim is that uh, he ought not to be advising the use for clinical purposes of a treatment which has not yet been certified scientifically to be safe and effective. That's simply an inappropriate way for him to use his uh, platform. Well, I think that, again, this gets into the
0: bureaucratic dominance that we see in our society, where you mentioned that you and I, who've written extensive, I mean, written books that include methodological chapters might be criticized for discussing this at all. We keep emphasizing, we're talking about the methods, not, you know, the horror of disease. The idea that only people in a particular narrow field can comment on something and they can do so only after peer review is not in practice a valid way for conversation to take place. I think obviously we ought to weigh the opinions of infield experts more but if some highly intelligent person, as you did during this show, or I did, gives a disclaimer, although I to call myself highly intelligent, but if, if someone gives a disclaimer and says, okay, I'm talking about the numbers here, this guy said this doomsday projection will happen if 80% of people get sick, and I have a question about that, there's nothing at all wrong with that point being raised. Same thing with Trump. If Trump says, I'm an intelligent man, I'm the president of the United States, I've read four or five papers on this that are somewhat inconclusive, but I know that doctors around the world are requesting this treatment. Let's look at it. I'm not, I'm not at all horrified by that, as long as yeah. the disclaimer is there. Yeah. The other, by the way, in terms of trade-offs, the other option is people not taking hydroxychloroquine to probably die. So again, there aren't a lot of solutions in life from a leadership perspective. There are a lot of trade-offs.
1: I, I just want to underscore one point here as we conclude, which is ex, the role of expertise within the context of public discourse about complex multifaceted problems. Certainly, there is a role for expertise. I'm an economist. There's a role for economic expertise in advising about the economy. There's a role for uh, social epidemiology expertise in advising about pandemics. But experts should be on tap, not on top. That's the way that I would put it. Experts should be available for consultation by political decision-makers but ought not to be uh, delegated the responsibility for making what are ultimately value choices, since ultimately public action has to weigh the relative significance of many different factors about which an expert is only expert on one of them or two of them. So this this tendency, which I think is very much driven by the climate change uh, debate, the climate change argument, which will be going on throughout our lifetimes, I reckon, this tendency to uh, argue for deference to experts runs a risk of course no nothingism is bad uh, you know burying one's head in the sand saying i'm going to pray and everything will be better cuz god's going to take care of it that's no way to run a railroad okay but because a person has a phd doesn't mean they're wise neither does it mean that they are responsible for the well-being of us that's what we decide at a ballot box and uh That's a concern that I have in this climate, that this kind of stampede toward deference to expertise will obscure the normative dimension of our problem. Value this versus value that. And how that question gets resolved is not a question of science. So I think there are two things there. First of all, I'm an advocate
0: of what people from Tom Sowell to Cicero have called the tragic vision of human reality which is that civilization is rare, it's complicated. There are lots of people who seem ordinary, scattered throughout civilization, who have superior knowledge about their small selected field, i.e. farming. Uh, And as a result of this, the view of society as a whole, expressed through elections or even silly things like Twitter polling, is very, very often, if you limit the conversation to people qualified to use the tools, if there are rules on what you can say, The general opinion of society is very, very often at least as valuable as the opinion of a selected four or five man team of experts. That that was one of the major problems in the Soviet Union, actually. Uh, It turned out that the best economists in the country weren't quite as good, um, with no criticism of the science of economics, but were not as good as the marketplace containing millions of Russians in determining what products people wanted. This is one of the basic ideas of an economic centrism
1: or conservatism and it doesn't go away in this one sector. It's it's very Hayekian. This is Friedrich von Hayek uh, uh, right to the core. Yeah, I would swing a little to the left of that, but yeah, it's the the basic well, I idea. mean the idea about information and about the the decentralized character of how we know what's going on in the world. No one of us knows everything or very much of anything. Correct. Collectively through the marketplace, the decentralized information that we have collectively gets expressed in prices. That's the Hayekian idea. I, know, I'm is, I was teasing a bit. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think for I'll give an example
0: here. Looking at the covid-19 discussion, there was a blog written by a tech executive whose last name is Pueyo, P-U-Y-E-Y-O. I think if you want to read this where it called the hammer in the dance, where he argued that we absolutely have to shut down to stop coronavirus or we'll all die. And this was another one of these blogs or another one of these pieces that just sort of made assumptions. Like one line was, let's say the death rate is 4%. Um, you know, let's say the infection rate is X. And this gathered hundreds of thousands of views online. And I was—I I remember being part of a thread of people, mostly college profs in their early years or junior scholars. But just looking at this and commenting, like, where does the 4% come from? Um, why would you assume this infection rate? Uh, someone just bluntly asked the question, did you just make this up? Someone threw up the Ianitas paper, which is where I found it, and yeah. said, what about this counterpoint infection rate? And that's what a real conversation looks like. Pueyo, who I assume has a medical background and who's, you know, a C level at a major tech company, would be the expert. But not one of the people responding to him, but the 300 almost equally qualified people responding to him were able to take down the entire argument. So I think that that secondary level of discourse has to happen. Another point that you raised, that I hadn't really thought about much, experts are only experts in their field. So if you're a virologist, I yield to you when it comes to maximum rate of viral spread or even the horrors of watching you know a disease victim's skin melt away or something like that. But that virologist is not more qualified than you are to comment on the economic impacts of an 18-month shutdown. And I find, and for that matter, that virologist is probably not more qualified than either of us to draw up a modern quantitative model. Doctors, I don't find, tend to be the best at doing that, that projects what's going to happen over a period of six months. So if a methodologist jumps in or an economist jumps in and says, are you considering this? That's totally valid. I don't think yeah. either of us is talking about how to manage an ER. I would never even presume to do that in a casual Twitter conversation. But if someone says, look, You claimed a 4% death rate. That's scarlet fever. Why, bro? That's a valid question to ask the expert in their field. Are they an expert at quantitative methodology also? Are they an expert at Keynesian or Hayekian economics? Probably not.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, We're going to leave it there. Thanks for uh, coming on the program, uh, Wilfred. Uh, You've given us something to think about and uh, appreciate you. I really do. So take care of yourself.
0: Yeah, always, always enjoy talking to you as well, Glenn. Thanks for having me on. Um, next time, we'll probably discuss Taboo
1: a little bit more. Yeah, we, we will. Let's give it a few weeks or a, a couple of months, maybe something like that. Let's see if we're still around at the end of the summer, something like that. We're, we're all We're almost all still going to be here. <laughs> but, I sure hope so. All right. Have a good all day. Right. Take care.